This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi and welcome to The Straits Times Health Check. I'm your host, Joyce Teo. With fast-rising COVID cases here making some people jittery, we'll be talking about COVID-19 and vaccines again. So I've invited Professor Wee-Eng Yong from the Duke NUS Medical School's Programme in Emerging Infectious Diseases to help us make sense of what's happening and give us an idea of what we can look forward to. In this episode, he talks about a fertility or reporting unlinked or even asymptomatic cases, whether there's such a thing as herd immunity and how we can live with an endemic COVID-19. Hi, Yong. Thanks for coming on Health Check. Hello, Joyce. Thanks for having me. Right, so it's been some eight months since we have you on the show. COVID is still here and I think some people are getting tired of it. Ah, sure. So I just wanted to, you know, hear what you think about the situation now. You know, I think recently the government said that, you know, it's not going to give the number of unlinked cases because, you know, we are one of the most mm-hmm. highly vaccinated mm-hmm. countries in the world. But, um, you know, that 81% that is still not enough. You know, tell us what should we make of the current situation? I think, the, you know, what, what we can be sure of, given all that we've learned uh, from ourselves and from, from the world, is that the vaccines work very well against Delta. Uh, you know, and really the main problem with COVID-19 is the severe COVID-19, the severe disease that, you know, puts the patients into hospitals requiring oxygen and then, you know, perhaps even intensive care. And that's what we want to avoid. And what we know from looking at the, the data from the vaccines around the world is that the uh, effectiveness in preventing such severe COVID-19 is extremely effective. It's still in the 90 over percent, even with, with the Delta uh, virus. So then, therefore, you know, looking at Singapore's situation, now that we have passed the 80% mark, you know, it is, uh, even though we now have yeah, supposedly increasing number of cases, and I'll qualify why I say supposedly in a minute, um, if you look at the, uh, the patients that need oxygen and those who need care have actually remained very stable. And the numbers are, you know, if, if according to Minister Ong's um, press release some time ago mm. that we have a thousand beds uh, that can take care of uh, such patients, there are only about five right now. So we can, we can be confident that, um, you know, the vaccines will uh, have d- done their job in preventing COVID, uh, severe COVID-19. Why I say supposedly increasing number of cases is that the Singapore mixes um, true cases, in other words, those who are sick, with those who tested positive. And that's where, for me, I, I find it hard to interpret the data. The reason is because we test by using PCR. PCR just tests for uh, the genetic material of the virus. They can be very stable. So what we don't know is that when you test positive, is it dead? Is the virus dead or is it alive? Has it been killed by the immune system? Or is it still infectious that it can be passed to someone else? And I think that there's uh, data beginning to emerge, especially from Holland recently, that even uh, the, uh, those who test positive, as long as they are vaccinated, most of them, have, have, the virus is already dead, in, and even when you find it in the nose. In other words, they are not that infectious. Now, even if they do pass it on, the fact is that these people who are vaccinated don't get disease because the immune system kills the virus very fast. So, so therefore, what we know of is that 80% of our population now, in the majority of these, will be able to defend ourselves very well against the virus. Uh, and that these numbers that we are picking up, uh, a lot of them probably, you know, 
one will not get sick, two will probably also not pass it on to anyone else. That's why I think the move forward to say, you know, start not to bother but unlinked cases and hopefully we you know we can take one more step further and stop reporting asymptomatic, those who tested positive but remain asymptomatic. Those are not true cases. We may not be able to detect all of them anyway, right? True. True. Um, yeah. but, okay, but okay. So I mean I see your point. You feel that we should leave out the asymptomatic cases among the vaccinated in our case count, right? But some people are worried that not seeing the total number of cases every day may lead to complacency with people already feeling the you know pandemic mm, fatigue mm. being demotivated to actually follow the rules. So I think that there's a fundamental difference between what happened last year and what what's happening right now. I think last year it made perfect sense for us to go after as many cases and as many of those who are infected uh, but remain asymptomatic uh, uh, um, as possible. The, the reason is because last year there was no vaccine. And so the only way to keep COVID-19 at bay and, and keep the numbers really, really manageable is to try and quash as much of the transmission as possible. Right. And therefore, the asymptomatic infection uh, was important because they could potentially transmit it on. What has fundamentally changed this year is vaccination because vaccination changes the entire equation. Right? There's no doubt that not all who are vaccinated and who, who become infected asymptomatically can pass it on. The issue is that the likelihood of that happening is a lot lower than those who are unvaccinated, which formed the majority last year. Now the majority are those who are vaccinated. So the asymptomatic infection takes on a very different meaning this year compared to last year. And, and that is why, to me, it is not making any sense now to try and track that population because we don't know what to do with that data. And one of the key things that we try and teach our young scientists is that you, know, you need to know what to do with the data. Otherwise, you're collecting things that you you know, more likely than not, it will lead you to a different conclusion because you don't know how to understand or interpret that data. Right, interesting. I guess the layperson see it differently, yeah. right? It's more like to, you know, tell yourself that, oh my God, the COVID is still something yeah. that we should be watching out for. Yeah, you, you know, the um, in the past, right, the, before polio vaccine became available, uh, and, and polio virus would spread. We know from all the studies done at that time that nine out of 10 infections do not produce any disease. You don't even know that you've been infected. Right? The 10% will get some fever and it's that 1% that will then get poliomyelitis, the paralysis. So in other words, 99%, 99 out of 100, it's actually not a problem. You, it's, it's that one out of 100. And what we want to do is to stop that one out of 100 and so therefore you track the cases. Now what happened when the first vaccine was, was introduced, um, it stopped poliomyelitis, but it didn't stop uh, transmission until a second vaccine became available. And because that was what was, you know, the vaccine that you swallow, it was better at, at uh, stopping transmission. So naturally, because it's easier to give, you swallow rather than have to give an injection, people preferred it. But we have now stopped giving the vaccine that you swallow because that vaccine is alive, right? It's actually a weakened virus, but it's actually live. 
Um, and that creates a problem when, when, we come, when we are approaching uh, polio elimination. We don't want any more live virus, even if they're weakened around, right? And so we've phased out that, that vaccine. In other words, all our children now are receiving a vaccine that would protect them against disease, but not against infection. So if you go by the logic that asymptomatic infection is a worry, then we should be very worried that polio is going to come back because all our kids are not protected against infection. Why then should public health or society pay a price for a scientific curiosity? It shouldn't, right? So the, the, the cost to society is the disease. It is not the infection. And so we should be aiming at stopping the disease and, and definitely the severe disease because that's what the, the cost to society because if we don't and we start chasing after infection that bears no um, significance to, to health, then the, the medicine starts to become worse than the disease. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to the Health Chat Podcast by The Straits Times on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. And now back to my conversation with my guest, Professor Wee Eng Yong from Duke NUS Medical School. Would you say that at this point, I mean, at 81%, we are comfortable in that sense? You know, we can actually mm. start on this track because there was all this talk, right, about herd immunity and then getting to 90%, etc. Mm. I, I think the herd immunity doesn't exist. Herd immunity is, is, mm. a, is a, a concept that was built by tracking cases. And as the name suggests, herd, right, it was, it was applied in animals, in, in uh, farming, uh, where the because they don't treat individual animals, they, they treat the entire herd. So if one is sick, then there's potential that this sickness will pass on. So the concept was built around monitoring uh, cases. But because we now have tools like PCR that allows us to detect not just cases, but infection, um, therefore we, you know, we apply this tool and get a whole lot of data. And that's where we start to get into very confusing territory because we not only now track cases, but we also track infection that doesn't actually form a case because they don't fall, fall sick. So the R not that, or the R that people now use to say, okay, this is what's happening in Singapore. Actually, that's not quite right because R should be tracking true symptomatic cases. It doesn't apply to asymptomatic cases. Right. So be that as it may, given that R may be slightly greater than one and therefore we may have you know, a growing number of cases, the reality is that if you look at the severe cases, those who need oxygen and those who need ICU, that number that the number has been quite flat, right? The trends the trend has been quite flat. It hasn't increased even though the cases have increased. Again, testifying to the fact that the vaccines are working very well to prevent severe disease. So can we expect the day where we get to herd immunity? I don't think so. Because if one, for one, is that I don't think that we can vaccinate enough people to achieve herd immunity. Um, if you look at Israel, they were way ahead of the world. Uh, in, and once they got to 60% uh, of the population being vaccinated, that rate has plateaued out. And that's why Israel has as uh, you know, number of cases have gone out a bit. But even then, you know, whether they are getting more severe cases or, or not, I think that, that data hasn't been, been um, seen by others. We are just reading reports from Israel. So we probably have to wait and see. Um, but in Singapore, we are now up to 80%. Can we expect that, you know, we are now free from 
in further increase in cases. Again, with Delta, it's hard to tell. And I, I come back again to the fact that actually we don't need it to be less than one, right? As long as the severe cases don't increase beyond our capacity, we can live with this disease. We, um, you know, last year we had more de dengue cases and more dengue deaths than, than COVID, but we have lived mm -hmm. with it and we have learned to live with dengue, uh, even though it's probably a, a more deadly disease than, than COVID. So you're saying the level of, I mean, the 81% is... We're comfortable now with I it. I think so. What I'm not saying is that we can immediately go back to you know pre 2020 uh, lifestyle, uh, but we can I think begin to ease off some of these measures that we are um, currently living under. But if you hear the government coming in, you know, telling you about new measures, it makes people think that um, the situation is still more serious than thought, possibly. Yeah. Does the worry that the hospitals may fill up? The, the hospitals filling up is an artificial system in Singapore because of the way we manage our cases. So, again, I go back mm -hmm. to the history of dengue. For instance, in 2005, we had a big dengue outbreak, which at that time was the biggest that Singapore ever had, about 15,000 cases. Because 80% of all the dengue cases were admitted to the hospital, uh, if you look back at the news at that time, you recall that hospitals had to postpone routine, uh, their routine medical uh, procedures, non-emergency surgeries and all that, elective procedures and all, were all postponed, right? So why? Because the hospitals were flooded with dengue patients. But as we worked on it, you know, we, we found that actually not every dengue patient needs to be hospitalized. Today, the hospitalization rate drops to well below 40%. So last year, uh, in the midst of a COVID crisis, we had in Singapore's history, the biggest dengue outbreak ever with, you know, almost, uh, with more than 30,000 cases. Right? But dengue didn't flood the hospital beds because we've learned to live with it. We don't have to admit everyone to the hospital, we can manage them in a primary care setting. Right now, all COVID patients, what I learned from my uh, clinician colleagues is that a lot of them are just sitting in the hospital bed but are completely well and waiting to be discharged. So why do we need to do that when we are now have at a point where we now accept that this is, disease is never going to go away? We are not going to be able to eliminate them. Even if we do and we, you know, go back to circuit breaker, eliminate them, then the minute we open up again, the, the disease will come back because this virus is, you know, has flooded the rest of the world. So at some point, we have to learn to be able to cope with it. And our ability to cope with this disease is much better now than, than last year. So we have vaccines, not only vaccines, we now have drugs that can be used. Some may argue, while well, these drugs are very expensive, and my counter to that is that equally shutting down Singapore for so long is also very costly to society. So I think that, you know, we now have the means to be able to open up in stages, no doubt, uh, but certainly continue in that uh, direction without having to make U-turns. The, the drugs, you meant those are for severe disease in the hospitals, right? Um, they are meant to uh, prevent severe disease. And the way these drugs start, of course, is that you, know, you you always have to start by treating those who have severe disease, right? To, to kind of show mm -hmm. that the drug would work as it should. Um, but increasing now, uh, more and more trials are aimed at giving it to patients in the outpatient clinic setting. Uh, 
I say outpatient mm-hmm. because uh, except for Singapore, most other countries would treat their COVID cases um, in, in a GP setting until they really need the hospital. So now a lot of trials are now moving in that direction where the drugs are administered in a, in a GP setting. Um, and for some drugs like remdesivir, now that are being converted to the oral form, so in the form of a tablet that you can take uh, without the, the IV infusion that's currently uh, used to deliver the drug. So more and more, we, the, the science is recognized and is moving in the direction of making these drugs available and that can be used in the primary care setting. So, so you know, we, I think we, we also have, are coming to the point where we really don't need to hospitalize every single COVID cases. I think what you're saying is, you know, it requires a mindset shift, right? For people to actually accept that. That's going to be quite, quite difficult, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it's the same for any other disease, right? I mean, historically, we did what we did for COVID primarily not because we think that every single patient will get severe disease or could get severe disease. The goal there wasn't to, to benefit individual patients, but rather to stop the virus from being transmitted in the community. But that, again, it was a t- at a time when none of us were vaccinated. So you had to do that. You know, in the future, I mean, if you have COVID and you're vaccinated and you're at home, mm-hmm. Would you have time? I guess mm. you probably go and see a GP, right? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, the disease doesn't uh, go downhill that quickly. Uh, you know, usually the average time to uh, getting to the point where you probably need oxygen and or supplementation and all that is about seven days, about a week into the illness. So, you know, th- there's plenty of time. In fact, what would be really good is is if you feel sick or if you have fever, then to st- go straight to the clinic, right? And then they will test. Uh, and we have good tests now for uh, to diagnose COVID very quickly and then get a treatment uh, on the spot. Mm-hmm. And that should uh, prevent, right. yeah, severe disease from, from developing. Right, and you were saying earlier that if it's serious enough, you can also pop a remdesivir pill? Uh, eventually, right? Not yet, yeah, but cheapy. eventually, cheapy. yeah. Thank you for your time today, Yong. Thanks, Thanks for helping Joyce. us understand what's happening right now. Thank you. I find all this very insightful. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, that's a wrap for Health Check. Look out for the second part of my conversation with Professor Wee Yong from the Duke and U.S. Medical School's Program in Emerging Infectious Diseases in the next episode. Thanks for listening. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.